tonight's Bible reading is Matthew 15, starting from verse 21 to 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And daughter was healed from that very hour. Human beings are like, we're just really interesting in the way that we love to cluster people together, make assumptions about them, and then perhaps rant about them. Yeah, we, we tend to divide into different kinds of categories of people and find ways of having conflict. Just to give you a few examples, if I say the words cyclists and drivers, <laughs> what do you think of? Now, I, I ride a bike and I drive, and it's interesting, when I'm a cyclist, I think like a cyclist. <laughs> when I'm a driver, I think like a driver's. But you just get a, a cyclist started about drivers and off they will go. May, maybe it's, uh, it's state of origin time, it's New South Welshmen and Queenslanders. Uh, maybe it's political conservatives or, and political progressives, you get them together at a table and the fireworks can fly. But it's not just things about hobbies or opinions about politics. There's, there's deeper divisions, aren't there? There's, you know, there's places like Russia and Ukraine, which are in outright war. Uh, there's Sunni and Shia Muslims who will kill each other. In our own history, there's the Catholic and Protestant divide. Uh, all over the world, there are conflicts, more, more than just about any other point in history, where people make assumptions about another group and write, write them off, like as lost causes. I remember being in Southeast Asia, visiting one of the people groups that we work among, um, a Muslim people group of about 40 million people. And we'd been in this city for uh, about a week and a half, and I had a day off, and I was uh, uh, going for, just on my own, going through a walk on, on the jungle down to this volcano, wasn't it? It was like a smouldering sulfurous pre-volcano or post-volcano, but I'd never seen something like that because I come from this really geologically boring country, right? So, so I went on this walk through the jungle to see uh, this, um, this amazing site, and Coming my way was a group of about 10 obviously Muslim guys with big beards. Now, just to give you a bit of background, at this point in our history, Australia and this particular country didn't have great relationships because I don't know if you remember the story of Andrew Chan and Sukumar, and we, we were just about to execute, well, the, they were just about to be executed in that country, and relationships between our two countries were sort of on tender hooks. Anyway, I'm, I'm walking through the jungle and these 10 guys are coming toward me and they draw near to me and they start talking to me and, and they say to me, 
where are you from? And without thinking, I just said, from Australia. Everyone loves Australians, right? (laughs) And then one of them, the spokesperson of the group, looked at me and said, we hate you. And I was like, oh, I really didn't think this through. I'm I'm in the jungle. (laughs) I'm outnumbered 10 to 1. And these are Muslims. And then every stereotype we hold about Muslims, or maybe just me, maybe it's just me. Like I thought, I I love Muslims, but sure enough, in me at this moment, the worst stereotypes rose to my mind. And I'm, I'm there thinking, what's going to happen? And the guy, after what seemed like forever to me, his face arced up in a smile and he said, ah, I'm only joking. <laughs> and then, then he hugged me and all the other guys came and hugged me and then they said, can we get a selfie? Anyway, we have this like three, four minute kind of discussion and in my, in my heart, I'm just feeling so relieved, right? But we kind of part eventually and I get around the corner and I just sit down because the tension was too much. I didn't know where this was going to end. But I thought that the script was going one way and then the script was totally flipped, right? There was this incredible point of tension and then everything was turned on its head, right? When you read the Gospels, there are many, many occasions where Jesus isn't afraid of creating an awkward moment, a dramatic point of tension. Like just to give you a few quick examples from Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 9, there's a woman who's been hemorrhaging, and for 12 years, and she desperately wants to be healed. And Jesus is on the way some, to someone's house who's more important, Jairus' daughter, to heal her. And this woman just thinks to herself, I don't want to, I, I don't want to make a fuss. She wants to sneak through the crowd, touch the hem of Jesus' robe, hoping that she'll be healed or having faith that she'll be healed. And then she, she wants to sneak away without anybody ever knowing. And that, so that's what she does. She sneaks through this pressing in crowd and she touches Jesus' robe and she's healed, right? She then starts to move away and Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Uh, Peter speaks up and says, look, there's, there's people pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And Jesus says, well, I felt power come out of me. Who touched me? And, and, and Matthew's gospel says this poor woman falls before Jesus, trembling, like physically shaking, the Greek says. Because she doesn't know how the story's going to end, right? And Jesus looks at this woman and just says these beautiful words. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Like this, this woman who has no dignity, thinks there's no place for her in God's story, finds out she's actually loved by God so much so that she's an example of what a daughter looks like. Or if you just flip the pages to Matthew chapter 12, there's another scene where Jesus is in a synagogue and the synagogue is packed with critics who are wanting to criticize Jesus and they're actually hoping that he will heal someone because it's the Sabbath day and then he'll be caught as a lawbreaker, right? So... So Jesus is teaching and, 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 and he sees this group of hostile people in the crowd and he says, you know, what's right to do on the Sabbath? To give life or to take it? To maim or to heal? And, and, and he sees this man with a maimed hand, right? And he says at this point, he just looks around the room and then he gets the man to stand up. 
And you can imagine the poignancy of this moment because they're waiting to, to criticize him and condemn him. But he says to this man to stand up, he says, stretch out your hand. And the man stretches out his hand and he's healed. What's amazing, even though he brings healing and goodness on the Sabbath, all the Pharisees can see is a broken law. This point of tension that Jesus is not afraid to invoke. Well, when we come to Matthew chapter 15, we, we have another incredible moment like this. It, the chapter begins again with Jesus in conflict with some envoys from the Jewish leadership sent to Gennesaret to monitor what Jesus is doing. And again, they publicly accuse him of breaking the traditions of his elders because he doesn't make his disciples wash their hands ceremonially before they eat. And Jesus declares that it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, but it's actually what comes out of your heart and through your mouth that makes you unclean. So he's been in this conflict situation, and it's so intense that Matthew 15 says in verse 21 that he has to leave the area. It says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he's actually in Galilee, a Jewish land, right? And the hostility is so great, he actually has to leave that place and go into non-Jewish territory just to find space. And the place he goes is Tyre and Sidon. Now, it might seem like these are just innocuous geographical markers for us, but Tyre and Sidon were the principal cities uh, of, of kind of that northeastern part of the world, um, and they were cities infamous in the Old Testament. So they were often uh, uh, condemned by Old Testament prophets for being hardened enemies of Israel and in direct opposition to the purposes of God. So you've got prophets like Isaiah in Isaiah 23, 1 to 17. You've got Ezekiel in chapters 28 to 30. Uh, condemning Tyre and Sidon as cities that live in opposition to God. So ironically, it's to these two cities that Jesus heads. And then it says in verse 22 this, that a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. So he's in this unexpected place, and this really unexpected woman approaches him. Now, this is one of those culture script moments when a Canaanite woman meets a Jewish rabbi, you could expect it not to go well. Uh, and, and to be honest, Matthew even heightens the language of racial tension because it's, they reckon Canaanite wasn't the contemporary term for someone from this part of the world. Mark's gospel uses the Syrophoenician woman. But Matthew uses the more ancient term, the, a Canaanite woman. And you probably know your Bible that the phrase Canaanite calls to mind one of the most challenging story arcs of the Bible. These were the descendants of Ham and these were the people who were in the land before Israel were moved in. And, and, and they became so bad that God would take them out of the land so Israel could move in. They, they had these gods they worshipped. One was called Molech. And the way you worship Molech was sort of a, like a cow made out of two kind of uh, round um, 
objects with a cow's head at the top, but the bottom was a furnace, right? And, and the way they would worship Moloch was in this valley called Ben-Hinnom, which became known as Gen-Hinnom. They would actually burn children in the fire as part of their worship of this Moloch. That, that place became the place that Jesus would use to describe hell, like the God-forsaken people, the God-forsaken place, right? They also worshipped the Baals, and the Baals were worshipped by shrine prostitution. Need, need I say more? But these were people who'd, who'd sinned so profoundly that they'd become harem or harem or dedicated for destruction, right? This is, this is whom this woman's people were. So this Canaanite woman emerges from this crowd and it says in verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. So here we have a Canaanite woman taking the hope of the Jewish nation on her lips. Like she is expressing hope that the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, it's almost the early confession of faith, would show her mercy, would show her uh, kindness. Uh, she, w- she wanted God's pity. Um, she was seriously in need and she wanted to be the focus of God's kindness to her. She wanted a Jewish Messiah to be kind to her. Now, Will... Will the script be flipped here? Uh, what are your expectations of Jesus at this point in the story? How do you think this story will go? Well, it says in verse 23, we get the first glimpse of Jesus' response. It says, Jesus did not answer a word. Like, he is silent. Uh, sometimes in the scriptures when Jesus acts, uh, Jesus acts. We get a reason or a motive for his actions. So sometimes like, and Jesus felt compassion or Jesus was indignant, right? But here we don't. We just get silent. So for a minute, we just are left to ponder. Some, some say it's a bit like meditation literature. We're invited into the text to wonder what's, what's going on. Is, is Jesus silent because he's mean? Uh, is Jesus racist or sexist? Is he silent because um, he wants his disciples to think for themselves about this moment? What's their response? What will they do with this woman? Will they welcome her? Will they advocate for her? Or will they send her away? We don't know. Jesus is just silent. So then we read on and we find out that his disciples say this. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. It's like, even though there's 12 of them, and there's one woman, she's totally overwhelmed them. Jesus, can you send them away? We can't get rid of her, right? Can you get rid of her? So we've seen the disciples play the protector and bouncer for Jesus before. Remember when there was these little kids, the gathering around Jesus, and Jesus was blessing them? The disciples came in at that point and tried to shoo them away as well. But here we have one woman and they're telling Jesus, can you send this woman away? And in verse 24, Jesus adds to her, uh, adds to his response. So he answered, 
I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So he's still not talking to her. He's talking to his disciples. And he's saying, actually, she's a, she's a non-Israelite. She's a Canaanite. I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. And it's true. Uh, Jesus did come first and foremost to, to restore Israel. That was the first movement of the story of salvation. He was reconstituting Israel around himself. Now, if you knew the deep story of, of his mission, we know that God chose Israel and blessed them to be a blessing to the nations. You know, they were called to be a, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So they were to be a priestly people to the rest of the world. But someone got to this stage in the history and said, God's blessing is for us alone. It's ours and, and for no one else. And it seems for just a minute, that Jesus is embodying that mindset. So things kind of amp up. And in verse 25, this woman breaks through the disciples and it says she actually makes it to Jesus. So she's got through the bounces and it says in verse 25, this woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. So now she's desperately before Jesus. Uh, crying out for his help. And it, it seems here Jesus amps up the kind of tension even more. He ratchets it up to almost intense levels because he, he says this remarkable sentence. Sometimes I think we overlook how intense this moment is. He says, he replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, right? So now he's not just saying she's a Canaanite. She's saying these disciples, they're Israelites. They're my, my children. You're a Canaanite. You're a, you're a dog. You know? now, now, in Greek, it's little dog. Like um, some say it's domesticated dog. Now, Jews didn't have domesticated dogs, but generally speaking, because they were seen as unclean. There are some records of people from Tyre and Sidon having domesticated dogs. But my experience is whether you call someone a wild dog or a dog, it never goes down that well, does it? It's not a nice thing to be caught. So what's going on here? Like the Jesus we read about, is he supposed to insult people? I, I don't know. I, I don't know what you think. What is going on? There was a, a, a scholar called Alice McKenzie who said, Jesus seems dismissive of a person in need with the apparent reason that she's female and a non-Jew. We tend to think of Jesus as the one who challenges unjust prejudice, but here he seems to be mirroring them. Like, is Jesus just mirroring the prejudices that are out there? There's another scholar, Francis Weir, who says this, Jesus' response seems brutal, offensive, the worst kind of chauvinism, incredibly insolent and atrocious. You know, is that what Jesus is doing? In this really uncomfortable moment, This is what happens next. Verse 27. She says, yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And at this point, the tension vanishes, right? Jesus' demeanor totally changes. And he says this amazing thing in verse 28. He says, Then he said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. 
and her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, what we have to understand about this moment, that there's only two times in the whole of the Gospel of Matthew where someone is described as having great faith. And in both times, they're actually a Gentile. So the other time is the healing of the centurion servant in Matthew chapter 7, right? So that's almost as incredible. So the Romans are the invading oppressive armor who are unwelcome presence in Israel. And here is one of their leaders who is showing incredible faith, right? And he's the second time and the second person to have great faith is a Canaanite woman. Now, just compare this to the disciples. And Jesus obviously often has to say things like, how long do I have to put up with you? You know, he, he, he's, he's constantly frustrated with the disciples' lack of perception and faith. But here we have the most unexpected woman of all, and she has great faith. Richard, uh, Richard France, uh, a scholar, says this, and I think he nails this passage beautifully. He says, Cold print does not allow us to detect a quizzical eyebrow or tongue-in-cheek. And it may be that Jesus' demeanor already hinted that this discouraging reply was not to be his last word on the subject. Need we assume that when the woman won the argument, Jesus was neither dismayed nor displeased. May this not have been the outcome he intended from the start. A good teacher may sometimes draw out a pupil's best insight by a deliberate challenge, which does not necessarily represent the teacher's view, even if the phrase devil's advocate may not be appropriate in this context. Now, that's a Bible scholar's joke. I hope, hope you got it. <laughs> but do you hear what he's saying? This was the response that Jesus was aiming at all along because she hasn't changed God's plan she hasn't changed Jesus' mind. He, he was a racist and now he's not. This was in fact the story of the Bible and the ark that was enfolding all along. Uh, and it's something that's been an implicit theme right through Matthew's gospel. So it starts in Matthew chapter 1 where you get the genealogy of Jesus and there's these four women. And, and they're, they're all Canaanites. Canaanite women of... So you've got... You've got um, You've got Tamar, you've got Rahab, you've got Ruth, and then you've got Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. These four unexpected women in Jesus' genealogies. Then in Matthew chapter 2, you've got King Herod who acts like Pharaoh and kills little baby boys. And you've got these magi from the east who act like Israel's true kings and offer a fitting worship for the newborn king. In Matthew chapter 4, you get Jesus being talked about as a light unto the Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 7, you get the, the story of this Roman centurion of great faith. Then here in this story, you get this incredible story of a, of a, a woman who has, um, who's a Canaanite who comes to faith. Uh, probably the feeding of the 4,000 is a Gentile crowd. And as you go forward, the first one to proclaim faith in the crucified uh, King Jesus 
is a Roman centurion. And all of this is implicit through the entire gospel, then becomes explicit in the famous words of Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go, go. And he sends his disciples with the great commission into the the world to share the good news that Jesus indeed is king. All of this to say that this idea of going to unexpected people in unexpected places to share the good news of Jesus is, is being there all along. Like if, if God's purpose can include Canaanites and Roman centurions, then we kind of must go. We kind of must follow his heart into his world and share the good news of the gospel. We've kind of meant to cross barriers and go towards people. It's kind of the same mindset that Paul had in 1 Corinthians 9 where he says, to the Jews I become like a Jew, to the Gentiles I become like a, to the free I become like a free man, like to, I will become all things to all men so that by all means I might win some. He has this great missionary heart. And it's not that he's not committed and unflexible at the core about what the good news of the gospel is. He's just very flexible about everything else. The seats we sit in in church and the style, we, that doesn't matter. The style of music we play doesn't matter. It's this being this going to people, learning languages, understanding the culture, uh, explaining the good news of a, in the way that they can understand, that having a go-to mindset. But it's also going as, as learners. Like to, to expect to find people who have extraordinary faith in the places that we haven't even gone yet. People that will be our teachers, people who will be our examples of great faith, looks like. Remember when uh, our organization first went up to, to work in northern Thailand, it was really hard going because the ethnic Thai are Buddhists. To be Thai is to be Buddhist, right? And then when it lived in that community, learned the language, started to share the gospel, and to be truthful, like the Thai are very polite people, so they would have short-term teams come in, preach the gospel, everyone would put their hand up and then the team would leave and they'd just go back to life as normal just because they're kind of polite. Like to get that kind of long-term life life uh, obedience to Jesus was just really, really difficult. But they'd lived in this village for a long time and this woman called Puyin, you know, she, she, she lived with a disability. She was a fully mature woman and she weighed 37 kilograms and lived in a wheelchair. And God revealed himself to her in remarkable ways. Um, And she came to faith in in Jesus. And she was the first Christian in that village. Now, she was an extraordinary woman. She she became this deep, um, deeply mature Christian with a heart to share her faith and disciple others. So much so that when someone became a Christian in one of the other villages in the early days. Um, she got to a point where her health forbid, forbid her from travelling. So what they used to do was two men would pick her up and carry her through the tracks for her to go to a village to disciple new believers. Now, if, if you had said to me, if there was a group of people in this village, you know, and you said, who's going to be the one here that God uses? Who's going to be the one here who has great faith? a great heart for evangelism, vision. And just my stereotyping of people would have probably not even looked at Puyin 
but she became the one. A people from a person from an unexpected place, indeed an unexpected person, who embodied this gospel work. This is what we're called to as a community of faith. To go where Jesus' heart and his love and his mission calls us to go.